All right, Matthew chapter 2. For those who weren't here in the first hour, today is Epiphany Sunday, the day that the church remembers Epiphany. We spent the entire first hour talking about history, origin, principles, scripture, everything about Epiphany, but we, we stumbled upon a very important concept at the end of the first hour, and that is, what is it, a king cakes or king's cake? Right, and so we we didn't know exactly what that was. Stacy kept trying to connect it to Mardi Gras, and we're like, "What?" And I'm like, no, "That's Lent." What we discovered is it appears, at least within some traditions, they start making king's cakes on Epiphany, and it goes all the way to Ash Wednesday. That entire time, you do it, king's cakes, and you hide different figurines inside of it. It can be a crown, or it can be a baby Jesus, whatever. And, and I, I, don't know, I don't know the meaning it continues to have. The main thing is that entire period of time between Epiphany and Ash Wednesday, I guess in some cases is referred to basically carnival, and it's basically indulgence, indulge, 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 because I, Ash Wednesday is fast approaching, and once you get to Ash Wednesday, what comes after that? Lent, which is now you're supposed to be a time of fasting and sacrifice. So it's like we need, you need more than one day of fasting or one, one day of feasting, which sometimes is referred to as Fat Tuesday, right? So, but that, that's very much rooted into Catholicism. Well, we, so all of that is not as relevant to us, but Epiphany is relevant to us because that is remembering very important biblical events. The baptism of Jesus, the visit of the wise men, and the wedding feast at Cana, right? So those are very important. Ash Wednesday is very important because it reminds us of our mortality, right? It reminds us of our mortality. Lent is an important time. It remembers Jesus 40 days in the the wilderness, his fasting, and it's a time to reflect on our own sin and our own mortality. So there are great spiritual benefits that come from it, but what do we always have a tendency to do? That which brings great spiritual benefit, we have a tendency to come and take it to try to make it into something other because we have a tendency to do that. But for Epiphany today, we have a, we have a reading in Isaiah 60, which we stu- uh, briefly looked at in the first hour. We have one from Ephesians 3, which we briefly looked at in the first hour. And we have Matthew chapter 2, which is the gospel reading, which we briefly looked at in the first hour. For this hour, we're going to just be in Matthew chapter 2. I want, I want to go to Isaiah 60. I want the Ephesians 3 passage because both of them could be a couple of hours of sermons, but we can't do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to Matthew chapter 2. All right, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to be. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I, could, I have notes to preach it like a traditional sermon, but you know what I think about traditional sermons. What do I think about traditional sermons? They should all be burned to the ground and we should get rid of them because I can't stand them, all right? Because what do I feel that uh, traditional sermons do? Hide the scriptures, right? Because I have to develop just, you know, you just want the points, right? And so I, I know in some cases you would argue they don't, but I think in some, in so many, I can give you so many examples in which they do. All right, but so we'll, we'll do a little bit of both, a little bit of traditional preaching with a little bit of just working through the text. But let's just look at 1 through 12. This is one of those passages. As soon as I say turn to Matthew 2, if you've been to church for any length of time, what do you do? Come on, you can be honest. If, uh, you know, this story, okay, good. Someone was willing to be honest. You, you know the story. You know the story, right? If I, if I was to say, close your Bible, tell me the story. Everyone can tell me the story. Who are the major characters in this story? The wise men? King Herod. All right? And then Jesus, right? Right? So everyone knows the story, right? You know what's going to happen. There, oh, there's something else that's not a character, but it's a major object. A star. See, y'all know the story. And what's the problem with knowing stories? Yeah, yeah, familiarity breeds contempt. Not that you hate it, 
but you just kind of take it for like, eh, whatever, whatever. And then a pastor's job is to come along and try to find some profound or unique way to make it interesting, right? And that's why pastors pull everything from movie clips to they'll do anything because you got to thought, how do I tell this story again? How do I tell this story again? Now, the thing is, what's the one thing we do know as Christians? Our knowledge of said story has no, no measurement at all of what the story actually has done for us, is doing. Just knowing it doesn't mean anything. How it's impacting us is a far different story. So then the question is, how should this story impact us, right? And so typically, because it's a, it's a story that's so familiar, pastors tend to focus on which aspect? Application over exegetical or interpretation because they, I mean, there's not, in many cases, this is a narrative. There's not a lot to interpret, right? They may offer some, some cool insight about who the wise men were or weren't and people may go, ooh or ah, right? And then maybe you can find some other little historical tidbit that people are like, ooh, that's interesting. You may talk about the star and talk about some scientific explanation for it and people may go, ooh and ah. That's just pastors looking for something to kind of dress it up, right? To try to add something to it. And then you try to come up with four or five points of application. But the main thing is, it's probably by the next Sunday, nobody even remembers it in the first place. So it's always difficult in how to approach it. So we're just gonna, I'm just gonna see what we can do with it. You ready? So here we go, Matthew chapter two. Here we go. Let's see what, what, what we can find out, all right? Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod king, Behold, there were wise men from the east, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, and Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called them, called the wise men, he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, they fell down and worshiped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream, they should not return to Herod. They departed into their own country another way. All right, 12 verses. Now, out of those 12 verses, this is where you remember, we, I do things differently here. You're going to have to participate here. All right, out of those 12 verses, what what do you, what jumps out at you? What what do you think the overall theme is? Do you think there's a key verse? What do you think, other than just trying to give us the historical facts, what else is happening here? Because we could just lay out the historical facts, right? We could just lay out what happens, right? And we just could go one, two, three. We could just summarize basically everything that happens in these verses, but other than the facts of what happened, what else do you see in this text? What do you see as a, a major focus point? Uh, anything, anything going on in this narrative. Like think of this as lit- literature class, right? You got to tell me something about this narrative. You got to give me something here. Okay. All right. So you think worship is a key here. All right. Okay, all right, king. I, now, this is, see, this is the, fu- the, this is the wonderful part of scripture. This is the f- wonderful part of all literature, right? Someone focused on king. Someone focused on worship. 
That's only two people, right? What else? What else jumped out at you? What else? What do you think? Okay, we have stars. Someone else, the star jumps out at them, okay? This is the way, this is the way art, this is how literature works, how all art works this way. Anything else? Anybody? I'll, I'll, throw, I'll, I'll throw this out. Do you think there is a contrast being made in the narrative? What's, a con- what's contrast? Okay. Things that are opposite or things that are different. Okay. Do we see a contrast? We got 12 verses, right? Do we see a contrast in the text, in the narrative? Is a contrast being developed by the author or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit? Okay. We have a contrast of two different kings mentioned. Okay. What are the, who are the two kings? Herod and, and Jesus. Okay. So we have a contrast between two kings. Okay. All right. Any other contrast? Come on, help me out here. This is good. No other contrast? Nobody else sees it? Okay, good. We have a, this is to me a big contrast. The wise men and Herod. Right? Do you not see? Right? Right, okay, right. There's a big contrast. Does it not mention that, uh, not only does it mention Herod, there's there, uh, a contrast in emotions. Does it not describe the emotion of Herod and the people? Find me the verse what gives me that. Trouble? Okay, so there's trouble. Now look at the uh, emotion described by the wise men when they come in and see Jesus with Mary. Joy. See the contrast? See the contrast? Okay, we have the contrast. Some wants to worship him, but there's a true worship versus the pretense of worship. Another contrast, right? Y'all see all the contrast? Okay, not only that, it's not explicitly stated in the text, but it's clearly implied. The, the, The wise men come from the, you can put Gentile. You can put Gentile there. The people are Jewish. The Gentiles come to worship while the people are troubled. See all the contrast? In fact, if we were in hermeneutics class, I would have just handed you 1 through 12, and then I would have said, please establish all the contrast in this text. I'm going to get lunch, and I'll come back and see what you've accomplished. That would be a great hermeneutical exercise. This is filled with contrast. Okay, now, the issue is, what do you do with the contrast? What do we typically do with contrast? Okay, maybe, right. Well, okay, maybe which one is right or wrong, or which one that we more connect with. Right? I mean, in almost all forms of storytelling, there's a contrast, right? What's the typical major contrast in storytelling? Protagonist? Antagonist. Oh, very good. All right. right. We are catching on. Okay. And there's a contrast between the two. Sometimes you're more drawn to the protagonist. Sometimes the entire, even though people may not admit that, sometimes you're more drawn one to the other, okay? More drawn one to the other. I mean, I, I could get into all kinds of discussions about storytelling, right? Okay? Now, in movies, it doesn't really matter because the movie is made. And if you come in and if you like the protagonist, you like the antagonist, the only thing that may, may, may happen is you may leave the movie frustrated because you didn't want that ending to happen to the protagonist or the antagonist, whatever the case may be, right? Because typically in American storytelling, how does the story always work? Okay, the happy ending and the good guy wins. Okay, it's so, so typical American storytelling. And foreign films, it doesn't always work that way, right? Good guy may be dead, right? And I'm like, yay! 
Yay! All right, right, because I like to subvert the storytelling, right? Now, I always talk about the storytelling in professional wrestling where, where the fans control the story, right? So in wrestling, it's very common for the fans to say, no, 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 no. We reject the good guy. We reject the good guy. They start booing, and then the, the writers are like, would you stop? Okay, so now what do we do, right? Now, and so then they have to kind of elevate the bad guy, and then the fans start like, yeah! And then, and then if they start cheering them enough, then you can then convert him back to a good guy, and then, then, then they become, it's a really weird psychological way of handling it. So, but the contrast serves as which one you're kind of, you see yourself in, right? Well, we, in the Bible, we t- typically try to always see ourselves as We like to see ourselves as David when he's killing Goliath. We like to see David when he's dancing before the ark. We like to see David as a man after God's own heart. We don't necessarily like to see David when he's murdering someone and committing adultery. We like to see ourselves as Solomon because he is the wise. We don't necessarily like to see ourselves as Solomon as the uh, serial adulterer, polygamist, and idolater. We like to see ourselves as Abraham when we're offering up Isaac. We don't like to see ourselves as Abraham when you're like, hey, honey, sorry. You're on your own, okay? You're on your own. They're going to kill me. You're on your own. Hopefully nothing bad happens to you. I mean, mean, if something bad happens to you, don't blame me because we got to look out for me, right, honey? Right, okay. We like to see ourselves as Lot, the righteous man who is so bothered by the wickedness of his day, as, as he's described in Peter. We don't like to see ourselves as Lot going, hey, the men of the city, here's my daughters, do whatever you want with them, or drunk having relations with your daughter. Right? Like, we, they're, they're, we, we, we pick and choose sometimes. Well, here, we like to see ourselves as the wise men, right? And a typical sermon would be, wise men still seek him today. And here's four ways where you can be a wise man to still seek him, right? Those are the typical way these sermons go. Well, let's go through this. And I, I want to emphasize the contrast because I think the contrast is kind of interesting, right? Now, I've got my notes. We'll see how we, how we want to pursue this, all right? Everybody ready? Let's start in verse one. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, behold, there come wise men, from the east to Jerusalem. I will argue that immediately in verse 1, the contrast is being established. Because immediately in verse 1, are we not introduced to two groups? We have Herod, and we have the wise men. Now, just for, because we do this in this church, uh, different than other churches, everyone has a Bible dictionary probably in their pew. Look up Herod. Let's see which Herod this is. If you don't have one, I can get you one really quick. Does anybody need a Bible dictionary? I can't walk too far back. Bobby, can you see if anybody needs one here? Anybody need one? Y'all got it? Anybody need one? Okay, all right, I'll okay. make sure. All right, look up Herod. Let's see which Herod this is. All right, Sarah, and what page number? 559. I've got to make sure I use the right dictionary. I've got too many dictionaries up here, all right? <laughs> I love when people listen to us online and I'll get an email. Yeah, you have dictionaries in the pews? Yes, we, we have. And they're like, and how, how does that go over? I'm like, uh, not good because nobody comes to our church. But hey, <laughs> but so, so what, you know what I always say? Don't do it in your church, okay? Just don't do it in your church, okay? All right, uh, now, it, it, is it Harry the Great is the one here? Okay, are, are we sure? Do we think? All right, pretty sure? Okay, let's read a little bit about him. The title Herod the Great refers not so much to Herod's greatness as in the fact he was the eldest son of Antipater. Nevertheless, Herod did show some unusual abilities. He was a ruthless fighter, a cunning negotiator, a subtle diplomat. Uh, the Romans appreciated the way he subdued a, a, 
opposition and maintain order among the Jewish people. These qualities combined with an intense loyalty to the emperor made him an important figure in the life of Rome and the Jews of Palestine. After Herod became governor of Galilee, he quickly established himself in the entire region. For 33 years, he remained a loyal friend and ally of Rome. He was appointed king of Judah, or Judea, when he, uh, where, where he was in direct control of the Jewish people. This required careful diplomacy because he, uh, he was always suspect by the Jews as an outsider and thus a threat to their national right to rule. At first, Herod was conscious of Jewish national and religious feelings. He moved slowly on such issues as taxation, Hellenism, and religion. He did so much, he did much to improve the relationship with the Jews when he, uh, he did much to improve his relationship with the Jews when he prevented the temple and Jerusalem from being raided and defiled by the invading Romans. Herod the Great established his authority and influence through a, a centralized bureaucracy. It goes on to talk a little bit about him. Um, okay, talk about his death. Okay, and, and what paragraph was that? Okay. Um, Okay, and then uh, he slaughtered all male infants who could possibly be considered legal heirs to the throne. Everybody see that paragraph? All right. They, they don't have... Uh, now, this is interesting. Yeah. I'm going to... Now, I'm going to... Okay. Does everyone see uh, something here? Do you see the dates for Herod the Great? to 4 B.C., right? Now look at the next Herod. 4 B.C. to A.D. 6. Okay, you ready to see that? Then you got uh, 4, uh, 4 B.C. to A.D. 30, and then Antipas, 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. Everybody see that? All right. Now, those dates, don't those dates... Now, those dates seem to fit. Now, it says, if you go here, Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the reign of Herod the Great. But that, that's dates. The dates throw me off a little bit, right? Don't they throw you off a little bit? Well, no, for Herod the Great. He's dead in 4 B.C. 4 B.C. 4 B.C. It's because of our calendar, right? But I just wanted you to see that. Everybody see that? But the dictionary clearly makes it clear in that last paragraph. Everybody see it? Right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the reign of Herod the Great. The, the wise men came asking, where is he that is born king of the Jews? This aroused Herod's jealous spirit. According to Matthew's account, Herod tried to eliminate Jesus by having all the male infants of the Bethlehem reign put to death. But this despicable act failed. Joseph and Mary were warned by God in a dream to take the child and flee to Egypt. Here they hid safely until he died. And then who's the next one to come along? Okay. All right. And we have him. And then, but we have a number of them mentioned, right? Harry. Yeah, these are all sons, I believe. Correct? All right. So you see them all show up? All right. I just want to make sure you saw those dates and did not get confused because you could have seen the dates for Herod the Great and what, maybe, what could you have possibly assumed? Well, that, that he was dead before, right? That he was before, but that's the king. All right, so everybody understand that's Herod the Great? I wanted to just make sure to do a little exercise that you understood that because you could see those dates and you could be, they go, well, wait a minute. The other, the other Herods fit more perfectly in, but the other ones obviously show up during the life of Jesus. Does that make sense? They're going to play a part in it. Does, does everyone got that? Any questions there? Are we good? All right. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. All right. Now, let's go back. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 2. All right. So we've identified the Herod. Everyone feels comfortable with that? All right. Okay. Now, even here in, in this study Bible, they identify it as Herod the Great as well. All right. So everybody... We're all on the same page? Okay. I just wanted to make sure we didn't get confused there. All right. Now, 
Let's go back to verse 1. Now, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. So we have the, we set up the contrast, right? So what you may want to do, if you want to take a piece of paper, draw a line from the top to the bottom. On one side, put Herod, and the other side, put the wise men, all right? So we can draw this contrast, all right? Now, the main thing about Herod, you could just say he's king during this time. He's king. And the wise men come from the east. And in parentheses, you could put Gentiles, all right? Gentiles. Okay? Um, They typically... All right, uh, the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew does not specify the number of the wise men. However, it mentions that they came from the east, which is traditionally believed they refer to countries like Persia or Babylon, which is interesting. Right? Persia or Babylon, that's what some people believe. Right? So we can see they're Gentiles. Now, we already get a, a major contrast, right? We're getting a contrast here, right? One's king over Judah, or Judea, and the others are Gentiles coming from a far distance. Verse 2, saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Now, the, the next thing we can see about the wise men, for some reason, they've seen the star, following the star, and they've come to worship. It seems no one else in, in Bethlehem or in Judea is even... Looking for it or even know that it's there. That's an interesting contrast. How does the Gentiles see it when the people of Judea don't? Now that seems to clearly imply, now we could go to Romans here, that they had been blinded. They had been given over to darkness because you would think that the people there would know. The people there don't seem to be paying any attention. Hey, somebody would be like, hey, there's the star. <laughs> but no people from the general are like, hey, we've seen the star. And <laughs> yeah, well, they, do they see the star? No, no, no. Right. But they, they were given, but they had to be specifically told. Right? They had to be specifically told. They didn't seem to know, all right? So we see a contrast again. Verse 3, when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So, we see another contrast. Some are coming to worship. Are they troubled? Are they worried? No kidding. Herod is worried. He's troubled. Now, the obvious question is, why is Herod Herod worried? He hears king. All right. Okay, right. Okay, very good. That's a historical context. I should have read probably the entire entry, but I was trying to hurry. Okay, that's good. Sarah just pointed out that the Bible dictionary itself identifies or states that from 14 BC on, his, he was starting to lose control, lose grip a little bit. Tensions were starting to rise, which would have been a common thing, right? Why would, there be, why would this be a common problem uh, with the Jews? Did they say it was because of the Jews or did it specify? Did it state the reasons for his troubles? Let's see really quick. I can, I can give you some, some guesses, but let's see what the dictionary says. There we go. All right, there we go. So he is worried about a Jewish revolt. So he sometimes implements policies by force. Now, Let's make it very clear. We understand why there's a problem, right? The Jews want to rule. They want to be in charge because they believe it's their land, right? He's trying to maintain his authority. He's he's there to make sure he keeps everything under control for Rome, all right? So you can see the conflict. Now, he's trying to control everything. He's worried about a Jewish revolt. All of a sudden, these people from who knows where, shows up. And they're like, we're about another king. Everybody see that? But please note, what does he refer to him as? Look at verse 2. Or what do they refer to him as? King of the Jews. Now he's worried about a Jewish revolt. If someone can rise up as king of the Jews, that could be a revolt. 
So he is worried about it from a political... So please know, here's a major contrast. Here's a major contrast I want you to see. Herod is seeing things through the eyes of politics and of the flesh. The wise men are seeing things from a spiritual perspective, not a political one. Now, they may understand King of the Jews as political. There's a possibility, but they're still looking at it from a much more spiritual perspective. And this idea of him being King of the Jews is going to be problematic, is it not? It's going to be majorly problematic. And you can see why this would scare the people. If Herod has been instituting policies and doing it so by force, and they hear that there's a king of the Jew, they're, they're, they're going to be like, that's going to make Herod mad, and then he's going to implement policies that could hurt us. And they're seeing it from a very political, fleshly perspective. So you see the contrast, right? We see the contrast right here. Herod is like, whoa, king, revolution, revolt rebellion. The people are like, whoa, revolt, king, rebellion. And the wise men are like, we just want to worship. We're not worried about your politics. We're not worried about your revolt. They don't have a, in a sense, they don't have a, you know, a team in the game, right? They don't have, because they're, just, they're coming from far off. They're just here to come worship. They're not here to get involved in the official politics of Judea. They're kind of removed from it. But you can see that contrast is stark. Like the text almost is screaming at you to see the contrast, is it not? Yes? All right. Verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. Now he wants information. Now please note, there's another contrast. Do you see that contrast? The wise man wants information to worship. Herod wants information to eliminate, to kill. Or we could say they want, please, this is very important. They want information to worship and to give. Herod wants information in order to take and eliminate. Right? Everybody see that? That's very, very, very important contrast. Very important contrast. All right? And we know because we know Herod, look at verse uh, 16, just so that you know that I'm not making this up. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceedingly wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. He, that's what he wants to do. He wants to use the information to kill, to destroy, to eliminate, to preserve his own status or to preserve his own political standing. The wise men, they want the information in order to worship and to give. There's a lot of of important contrast right here. Yes? All right? I'm not trying to do any application right now. I'm just trying to show you the contrast. Okay? Next, and thou Bethlehem... Let's see. And they said unto him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus is written by the prophet, and thou Bethlehem and the land of Judah... Art thou not the least among the princes of Judah? For out of thee shall come the governor that shall rule my people Israel. Now please note, verse 5 and 6. He, Herod inquires of information and he's given revelation. He's given insight from God's word because they cite to him what? Scripture. What scripture is given to Herod? Micah 5.2. Now please note. Herod receives scriptural revelation. Does he stop and go, whoa, 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 whoa. Scripture saying the one. Now, he probably takes this scriptural revelation and probably even becomes more concerned because what does that scripture say? It mentions the place. Oh, that's not, that's not good news for him. He doesn't go, whoa. So a king is coming that's going to rule Israel. Well, then I'm just going to step back. He sees scriptural revelation and his response is not going to be good. 
Others, or at least the wise men, are going to see the scriptural revelation. Whether they understood the scripture or don't understand the scripture, they seen the star and they're coming. They have some understanding. They're going to see it to go, okay, we're here. We're, we are going to use the scriptural revelation in order to worship, in order to give, in order to bow. Both are receiving the same revelation. Everybody got that? There's a contrast. The contrast in this narrative is insane. There's so many of them. All right. All right. Next. Then Herod, when he had privily called the the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. So he wants more revelation. Herod seeks more revelation. He seeks more revelation. Now, he is seeking more revelation again for what purpose? To destroy, to kill, to preserve his own standing for selfish reasons. And what do the wise men say? It doesn't, doesn't say anything at that point, does it, right? He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search diligently for the young child. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. Now we see deception. Another, we, we see, well, we see deception. We see another contrast. Herod uses the pretense of worship simply in order to gather what he wants so that he can get what he wants, which would be to eliminate said threat. He uses worship as a pretense. The wise men, are they using worship as a pretense? No, they want to literally go and worship. Right? That's what they really want to do. All right, what happens in the next verse? I'm trying to go through these contrasts quickly because we're going to run out of time. All right? Uh, Verse 9, when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. Now, we have, we, have the, we have another contrast. I know I'm just going through these carefully and I'm not outlining them perfectly, but I, just, I want you to see the contrast. More than, more than trying to get a perfect outline here, I just want you to see what is happening. Herod is all paranoid. He's worried. He's troubled. He's fearful. He's concerned. And they, they're just like, oh, Bethlehem, great. We're going to use this revelation and we're going to follow it. They follow it and then when, as soon as they get there, what are they overcome with? Great joy. Great joy. Oh, that contrast is so important. That contrast is so important. All right. I, I could start preaching right now, but I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try to hold off. All right. When they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, fell down and worshipped him. They, they finally get to what they've been looking for. And what's their res- response to fall down and worship? What's, what's the kind of the, what is the meaning of to fall down and worship? It's humble yourself. When you fall down before something else, you're acknowledging the thing you're falling down in front of is what? Greater than you. All right? And then they open their treasures and they present unto him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now we can do all kinds of things with the, the symbolism of the gifts, but what do they, they show up and do what? They give the, So think of it this way. The revelation of God, the epiphany that they receive from God's word leads to what? Let's summarize what it leads to for the the, uh, wise men. The revelation of God for the wise men leads them to do what? To, To stop following themselves and follow that revelation and pursue that revelation. They stop following themselves, right? They're pursuing something else. It's not, they're not following their star. They're not following their want. They're not following their desire. In fact, their want and their desire becomes where the star is pointing them to, right? They leave, they're traveling all the way from possibly Persia to Babylon, all the way to Jerusalem. That's not a, or to Bethlehem. That's not a short distance. I mean, I'd have to look it up, but I mean, that's a long distance. So they, they, God's revelation leads them to pursue something other than themselves. Not only, their revelation leads them to what? To expressions of joy and rejoicing. Not only that, the revelation of God leads them to do what? 
to humble themselves, to prostrate themselves. And then it leads them to offer offerings, to sacrifice. They opened up their treasures. Did you note that? They opened up their treasures. They didn't stop in Jerusalem and do a bake sale to raise some money. They gave their treasures. All of God's revelation led them to do those things. The same revelation led Herod to do what things? He did not want to follow it as much as he just wanted information about it, but it led him to trouble, paranoia. He wanted to find it in order to eliminate and destroy it. Okay? Led to lying and deceit. Led him to utilize the concept of worship as false pretense. You can make a list of all the things. Now, this immediately, we should see the application here. Now we can just focus on application. That contrast, is that contrast not like absolutely clear? Like I'm just abandoning all notes at this point. That contrast is clear because every single one of us, we have revelation, it's called God's word, right? And we, whenever we read God's word, we're kind of confronted with the same possible directions. Because sometimes we see God's word and how do we respond to it? Well, well, let's go with the Herod way. Okay, let's go with the Herod way first. Let's go with the negative. I'll try to end on a positive, right? I'll try to end on the positive, okay? Uh, in what ways do we act like Herod with God's word? Sometimes we're troubled by it. We reject it. Oh, I know this one because I've been preaching for a long time. We get mad by it. We get angry at it. We don't like it. Okay? We, we do not like We misrepresent it. We lie about it. We twist and use it. We may even try to use it for our own advantage. Oh, I have watched that so many times. So many times. People want advice from God's word and if they don't, they'll, come from, they'll go from Christian to Christian to Christian to Christian to Christian until they hear the Christian tell them what they want to hear. And they will, they will describe it all. They, they will cover it all up in the pretense that I just want to know what God's word has to say. I just want to know what it has to say. Oh, I, man, I've heard that nonsense so many times, so many times. And, and it's, so, it's so disingenuous. I've, as a pastor, you hear it all so many times. And sometimes you're just like, what in the world is going on? What in the world is going on? And, and typically people start using excuses to cover it up, but they will always try to cover it up in some spiritual thing. What is the number one way Christians act like Herod as far. He's covering it up by saying, I just want to know where the child is because I want to worship him. Right? And we know that's just a full-blown lie. Christians, what do Christians say? To, it's the get out of free jail card for everything. If, if someone wants to leave the church, but they don't want confrontation, what will they say? Oh, come on. Oh, I feel like God is telling me it's time to go. I feel, oh, we witnessed that in this church. I'll never forget this Sunday. I'm to this day, I'll, I'll just never forget it. This church spent thousands of dollars so someone did not have to raise a dime so that they could go to Africa for an entire summer to be a missionary. We paid every cent. They didn't have to do anything. There was no, because you know how I am about whole, the whole missionary thing, people going on deputation, have to raise money. We're like, hey, you want an opportunity? We're going to do it, right? So we spent, we, we paid for it. They went for what, three months? Their first Sunday back. They tell us all about the trip. And then what did they say at the end? 
Uh, I feel like God is telling me to leave the church. You just took three thousand. Oh, but it was like crazy thousands of dollars because I mean it was for an entire summer. And then they come back, and their first Sunday back is peace out because God called them, told them. And a church where we deny, we don't even believe in extra biblical revelation. Does, does everyone, maybe the Pierces remember, remember like it was kind of like, it was kind of like a slap in the face. You're kind of like, what just, what just happened? What just, ha- I'll never forget that. I, I was sitting right here. I was just kind of like, oh, that's good. You talk about feeling kind of dumb as a pastor. Now, on one hand, on one hand, you have to look at it as well. You know, hey, we supported work, and hopefully, hopefully, yeah. But on the other hand, you know how like you're feeling like people. You, yeah, as a pastor, you feel like everyone's looking at you like you're an idiot. Okay, you should have done it the way normal churches would, and had the person raise some money and do some bake sales and car washes. Or, yeah. but I don't do any of that, right? Because I'm like, look, if you want to work, if you want to go to ministry, it's our job to get you into ministry. At all costs, right? I've always said that. If someone in this church wants to be a minister and they want to start a church, we would do everything in our power to pay for everything they needed so they could start. And I've always been like, people shouldn't out there be struggling. And then, but guess what? It was all, it was now God's will. It wasn't God. So God couldn't have told the person three months prior. God couldn't tell the person, hey, no, you're going to be leaving the church. Go get money from another church. You know why they wouldn't have went to another church? Because they wouldn't have been given a dime, okay? That's why, okay? That's crazy. And at that point, I wasn't even receiving pay. I'm bivocational working like 80 hours a week, and then someone else gets all this money, and then they're like, peace out. And you're kind of like, what is happening? But that, instead of just saying what? Hey. I'm done. I've just decided I'm done with this church. I don't like it. But everyone's got to have a spiritual reason for leaving, right? Everyone, because we always have to make it spiritual. That's such a Herod thing. Herod didn't have any desire to worship. Just, just be straight up honest. I don't like you. I, I've heard it. If I hear this one more time, if I ever receive another phone call and hear these words again, I'm going to get in a car and just drive as fast as I can in front of a semi because I'm so tired of hearing it. Well, pastor, um, uh, we're just going to have to move along because we just need to be in a church that preaches the gospel. What? So I always go, wait, how do I not preach the gospel? We just did a six-month study on justification. Well, that's not what I mean. Well, tell me what you mean. Well, I just mean, I just need, you're not, I need to know what you mean. What, you, what do you mean? Well, I just need a church that will, the pre, that's more gospel-focused. I just did a hundred hours on law and gospel. Well, I just need, what does that even mean? So every Sunday I'm supposed to go, here are the key elements of the gospel. We are sinners. We cannot save ourselves. Our only hope is in the imputed righteousness of Christ. Have I not preached that message literally consistency? Like, to say that we don't preach the gospel, do you know how offensive that is to a pastor? Now, it would be one thing if you made said accusation and I could not go pull up the internet and pull up 347 hours of teaching on the gospel. And that's probably an understatement of 347 hours because there's about 6,000 messages of mine online, right? I I produce almost 3,000 hours of content a year. There's no church comes close to it. You're telling me in that 3,000 hours of content, I don't present the gospel? That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. What is that? That's Herod. That's trying to use spirituality to justify what? It's very simple. Hey, you know, I know, I, so it, it sounds, sometimes it sounds like a, when a girl breaks up with a guy. Hey, I hope we can still be friends. Just stop saying you want to be friends. You're done. You don't want to be friends. You're finished. Stop with the friendship thing. What does that even mean? Well, uh, you know, we can't be boyfriend and girlfriend, but we can be friends. Just, you've already moved on. Just stop. Just stop, right? Just say, just say what it is. I, you, you know what? The best thing to do is don't even offer an explanation. I'm leaving because I want to leave. 
But does that sound spiritual? No. So we got to work it in. We got to work it in spiritual. I'm going to worship God somewhere else. I'm going to worship somewhere else because I just stop it. You're going because you want to go. Right? I, look, I can have, I got more respect for that, right? I got more respect for that because it's not being, it's not putting forth a false pretense. Herod is doing what? He's utilizing the revelation of God as pretense for his own will, his own way, and his own selfishness. How many times do Christians, we describe, we, dis, we disguise our own selfishness and our own way in the most spiritual terms that we can. And it's always the go-to is, God told me. Or I just need a place where I feel, we, we have all, we, we, know, we know the language. It's like, a, it's like a kid knowing the right words to say, to get their way. Kids can, teenagers can, everyone can figure it out, right? Hey, how, what's, what's the best way? Now, well, I take it back. Usually, if you have a big family, one kid is smart enough to kind of know how to play the game, and the others are just like, I'm going to do what I want, and you can't tell me what to do, right? Okay, but there's always the one who's a little bit more diplomatic and smart, right? And they typically get their way because they play the game, right? Well, Christians play the game, and that's just straight up Herod. Hey, guys, when you find Jesus, t- tell me where he is because I want to come, wink, 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 worship him. I may bring a big sword, but I'm going to come worship him. Or I may kill a bunch of people, but I'm going to come worship. And sometimes as a pastor, it's the same way. Hey, we just need a place where we can go worship and be happy. And then they spend the next two years doing what to you? Bad-mouthing you, gossiping and slandering you. Well, it sounds like you were so needed to go find a place to worship. Look, if you got some bad things to say, I'm right here. Let's, let's say it. Say it to my face. Come on, I'm right here. We can step outside. I got no problem. Right? I'm not intimidated. But no, no, no. They're going to, you're going to, you just, you, uh, oh, what's that? Oh, what's that? Oh, oh, oh man, what's, my back is killing me. Yeah, because about 75 now, knives have been st- stuck. Yeah, because they can't just tell you what they think. But, they, but they're the spiritual ones. They're the righteous ones. That's, that's Herod, is it not? Are we not a lot like Herod? Herod is the example of utilizing spirituality to disguise and cover up our own, what? Selfish will and desire where we really are doing what? Serving self. Let's be honest. What's usually more important to us? Our self-preservation our position, and our way. Right? Hey, a pastor can do the same thing, right? Let's be honest. I can cover up my own. Look, a pastor can can do the same thing where he can cover up his own self-interest in the most spiritual way possible. Right? A, A pastor can say, hey, guys, We need to reach this city for Jesus. I need you to invite people. I need you to tell people about Jesus. Who have you invited to church this week? They're dying and going to hell. You should care. That sounds spiritual. But the more people who come to the church, what does that usually translate into? Oh, he makes more money. The more people coming... And the more people come to the church, what does it also typically mean? Greater job security. Or, oh, that's a good one. Because if your church, that's why I I, I messed up. I messed up so bad as a pastor. I'm just going to be honest with you. I made a stupid promise very early on, right? What was that promise? I'm never leaving. And I've been told by many pastors, my first pastor came back and visited me and told me I'm wasting my time here in this town. Right? My first pastor came into, he came in here and visited. And then afterwards, he's like, Wait, we even had visitors who came. I don't know, remember the couple. And they pulled me aside after going, what are you doing here? You need to get out of this place. This place, you're wasting your time. Like this is, a, you're in the middle of nowhere. Get out. I was dumb because we started small and then we grew pretty big. Remember at times we had this place packed. 
I should have said peace out right then because my resume would have looked good. Little church grew to this size, out. And I could say, God called me. God called me. I'm sorry, I got to go. I'm so sad. But God, I got to go where God calls me. Goodbye, peace out. And we just end up in Florida, Hawaii, or the Caribbean, or who knows where we end up, you know? And it's just amazing that it has a bigger, and I learned this as a teenager. Now, you guys don't know this, but I know this, because I had gone to Dallas with my pastor from First Baptist Church, Tuscola, Texas. It was a cool conference. And then in the car, on our way back, he takes a detour. And I don't remember the name of the town, but he tells me that, hey, this church is, you know, offering him job. So I'm like, okay. And then he shows me the house, the parsonage, tells me he's going to get a car allowance. And he's telling me all of the reasons to go. And none of them are spiritual. Now, at that time, I, I was like, how dare he should be born? Now I can understand because obviously those things matter when you have a family. He had a family, right? right? And so it was a big church. Now, now, to me, it left a bitter taste in my mouth because, I, again, I was a teenager, so, you know, I'm just like, God first, right? Sounds good. But then whenever he left, he probably said that God, I don't remember his words. Oh, he definitely said God called him. God, God called him out on it. Okay, God, God, yeah. And it's just, God calls you to something bigger and better. So I'm just saying we are a lot like Herod. And the text is screaming the contrast, is it not? Now, sometimes we discuss, and sometimes how do we react? Sometimes we don't like what it has to say, and we get angry. I know if I preach something someone doesn't like, they just as well go full-blown Herod on me. Right? They don't like it, and they get mad, and they argue. But they would say, who's on their side? Of course, they would say, God's on their side. Now, on the contrast, we'll have to end with this, is the wise man. How should we respond to God's revelation? We should follow it. Not ourselves. It's, it's very difficult sometimes to know if you're following God's revelation or if you're following yourself. Isn't that, isn't that the never-ending struggle as a Christian? I want to be following God's revelation, but so many times I'm actually placing the star that I'm following is me. At least there they have a tangible object to follow. We don't. We, we, we want to think that we're doing this. But sometimes, for those uh, listening online, I'm holding the Bible in front of me and I'm following it. But to be honest, sometimes I'm placing the Bible behind me. And sometimes we're doing this. And we want scripture to follow me. And we tell everyone that what is actually right. I'm leaving the church because scripture is on my side. I'm leaving the church. And, And guess what really is leading everything? Me. That's hard. Have you ever done that where you're doing the leading and God's word is doing the following? Oh, come on. We all have, okay? I, I've done it a million times, okay? I probably will do it today, okay? I can be doing it right now. That's always hard, but we should try to follow God's revelation. What's another thing we should do if we want to be like the wise men? Well, the God's, we'll, we'll get there. Well, the next one, we should be filled with rejoicing and joy at the revelation. Even if it goes against what we want. That's hard to do, is it not? Second, third, we should be willing to give and sacrifice as a result of God's revelation from our treasure. We should be willing to sacrifice and give for God's revelation. Right? And then we should be willing to humble ourselves and bow down. We should be humbled by the revelation, not built up about the revelation. When the revelation becomes more about you than about it, and so many times in church disputes, it's no longer about God's revelation. Because instead of people being humbled by it, we fight about it, which is usually the exaltation of man over it. And that goes for pastors and people in the pew. So who are you like today?
We all have God's revelation. There's, there's the epiphany. There's the manifestation of God's will and everything. It's right here in scripture. There's no other way he's manifesting it to us. There's no voice. There's no nothing else, right? Here it is. We all own one. And then what are you doing with it? Are you treating it like Herod? Will you cover it up in a pretense of, of spirituality, but really all you care about is yourself? Or are you laying aside yourself to follow it? Because really, if you think about it, the wise men kind of d- demonstrate a, a certain principle. Deny self, die to self, and follow him. Now that, that's what we all strive to do. Do we ever come close to that? No, but there are some ways tangibly we can. The wise men were able to pull it off to some level, right? Because they clearly weren't following their self. They were following the star. Clearly, you've got to deny yourself to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. <laughs> you're, deny- you're clearly dying to self when you take your own treasure and say, here's frankincense, gold, and myrrh. That's somewhat valuable. And you're giving it to a baby. Now, that's because they realized that baby was king of the Jews, deity. That epiphany is all about the recognizing of his deity. So that's, but if we truly realize that he is deity, then should we not die to self, deny self, and follow him? But we act like Herod. There's the contrast. I think Matthew 2, 1 through 12 is about contrast. You meditate on those contrasts. Let's pray. Lord, God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, I can't speak for anyone in this room, but I know I've been Herod way too many times. I know we've all been guilty of being Herod inside this church. We've seen examples of where we disguise spirituality or we disguise our own selfishness as spirituality. Forgive us when we play that game. It may work on man, but it never works on you. Forgive us for that and let us develop an attitude that is far more like the wise men than it is Herod. Forgive us. And thank you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...